Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, September 4th, 2015. Get ready to go into the Labor Day weekend. When we emerge from the Labor Day weekend, it will be heresy, hurricane season 2015-2016. have to check the Farmer's Almanac to see uh, what the heresy forecast is for the upcoming season. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open up our Bible, use sound Biblical hermeneutics, good exegesis, proper distinction of law and gospel, a Christ-centered hermeneutic, in order to see if the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Bible, to see if what they're actually saying squares with what God's Word says or if they're twisting God's word, teaching false doctrine, teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach, you know, stuff like that. And sadly, over and again, we see that the the large percentage of the folks out there ain't handling God's word correctly. The more popular they are, the least likely they're rightly handling God's word. Now, let's talk about what we're going to be doing today. And let me set the context this way. Um, what you haven't seen, what you don't, ha- you haven't seen is that we have been working frantically behind the scenes, preparing and getting the audio ready for purchase and download from the Pirate Christian Radio Conference for 2015, the Corum Deo Corum Mundo Conference that recently concluded it at uh, Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. And so we are just about finished with all of the edits and getting everything prepared properly, getting the sound levels right. It's a little bit of an ordeal, but uh, we will be making those available for purchase um, either during the weekend or early after the Labor Day holiday. So, uh, you know, but uh, the uh, the bulk of the work in order to do that, it's uh, been quite an ordeal. So that's what we've been working on. And uh, what we're going to do today, since we're going into a three-day holiday here in the United States, we're going to end the week off with two good sermons. We're going to do a a Martin Lloyd-Jones twin spin today. And we're going to be listening to two sermons on the same text, practically. Acts chapter 2, verses 40, 41, and 42. 
and two successive sermons delivered by Martin Lloyd-Jones on this text. The first one is entitled The Apostles' Doctrine, and we're going to listen to that in its entirety, take a break, and then we come back from the break, we're going to listen to the next sermon on the same text entitled The Church and Doctrine. And I think this is these are two vitally important sermons that uh, Christians need to hear today. They absolutely need to hear them, and I'm looking forward to passing them along to you. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, you know, as I'm working behind the scenes to try to get the the audio out for our conference, and then keep an eye on our website and my social media. If we're able to get them out by the weekend, you'll be able to uh, purchase and download them over the weekend. Uh, if not, it'll be you know by the time we come back on uh, Tuesday from the three day uh, holiday. So. Without any further ado, here is the first sermon that we're going to be listening to in our Martin Lloyd-Jones twin spin entitled The Apostles' Doctrine, taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 40, 41, and 42. Here we go. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, in the second chapter, reading verses 40, 41, and 42. Verses 40, 41, and 42 in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And with many other words did he, Peter, testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And you remember last Sunday night we were looking at also verses 44 and 46. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, let me remind you again of what we are doing. We've been looking at this statement, indeed, at the whole of this second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles for several Sunday evenings. And our reason for doing so is this that uh, we start from the proposition that the only hope for the world tonight in all its troubles and perplexities and anxieties and unhappinesses is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But now the question arises immediately. What is that gospel? What is that message? And as I need scarcely remind you, there is great and tragic confusion with regard to that. Never, perhaps, has there been greater confusion with regard to this question than there is at this present time. And that is why I'm calling your attention to this second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Indeed, we begin in the first chapter, and I hope to go on as God enables us to consider other statements also in this great book. For what is this? Well, this is a book of history. It's called the Book of the Acts of the Apostles. And that's quite a good name. But as I pointed out, an equally good name would be the continuing work and activity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the writer, you remember, Luke, 
starts by saying, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Implying that here he's going to tell us of what Jesus continued to do. And that exactly, of course, is what this book is. Because we shall find uh, Peter saying again in the uh, third chapter when everybody was trying to worship him almost and to praise him for healing a man who had been born lame, Peter turned to them and said, Why marvel ye at this, or why look ye so earnestly on us? As though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go, etc. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Very well. Here I say we have the continuing activity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see him forming and establishing the Christian church. If you really want to know what Christianity is, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, if you want to know what the Christian church is, Surely the thing to do is not to start by reading what somebody living today may think it ought to be or thinks it is. The only honest thing to do is to go back to its origin, to the beginning. You've no other authority. Otherwise, it's just a human opinion, and one man's opinion is as good as another man's opinion. And you have nothing. And you'll find it'll change from time to time. No, no, there's only one honest thing to do. And that is to go back and to see how it ever came into being. What it was like, what it did, what its members were like, and what characterized them, and so on. Now that's exactly what we are doing. And here it's all put quite simply and plainly before us. And what we have seen is this. That a Christian, essentially, is one who has been entirely changed. Now here are these 3,000 that were added to the original group of 120. You remember 120 people met there in an upper room with the apostles. To that number, as the result of one sermon preached by the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to the Christian church. And what we've seen about them is this, that they underwent a very great change. These people, some of them, were the same people who, but a few weeks before, had been crying out with the crowd about our Lord and saying, Away with him, crucify him. Give unto us Barabbas. The same people. But now, listening to the preaching of the apostle, who was filled with the Holy Spirit that had just descended upon the early church, we are told that they were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent, change your minds, think again, see how wrong you've been. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, that's what happened to them. They underwent a complete change. They were entirely renewed. To use the biblical term, they were born again. Now, that's the thing we've been seeing and emphasizing. That the Christian is not merely somebody who is slightly different from somebody who is not a Christian. 
He's not just a little bit better. No, no, the point is that he's entirely different. He's got a new understanding, a new outlook, a new mind. He feels in a different way. His will acts in a different way. He's a new man. He's a new creature. These are the terms that are used in the New Testament. But you see, all this is forgotten today. The common idea is that a Christian's a good man. He doesn't do certain things, and he tries to help people along and hold certain idealistic views, and he holds strong opinions on certain prominent questions like apartheid in South Africa, bombs, and so That's a Christian. But you see, that isn't what we find here. We find something entirely different. And this is the authority. Now, this is not only found here in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. If you take the trouble to read the long history of the Christian church, you will find that whenever there is what is called a reformation or a revival in the history of the church, it is always a returning to this. People who had been formal in their religion suddenly are awakened and are changed, and you get a repetition of this. There'd be no church tonight were it not for the great revivals and reformations which have brought people back to the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Right. Now then, there is the fundamental definition. And what I'm doing now is this. I'm holding before you what we are told here of the way in which this new life, this new nature, manifests itself. Life always shows itself. A man always reveals what he is. We all do that. We show what we are, we show how we think, by what we do. And so did these. And it became clear at once that something drastic, fundamental, had happened to them. What was it? How did they show it? And let me remind you again that I'm doing this and holding this before you, my dear friends, or not out of a theoretical or an academic interest, but because I trust we shall all be examining ourselves in the light of this. The world needs Christian people today. Not only that, we're all moving and our lives are advancing and life is uncertain. We don't know how long we've got left in this world. Any one of us, quite apart from war and bombs, are we ready to meet death and eternity? That's the question. That's why this is all so vital. We may say we're Christians. Very well, let's test ourselves in the light of what we're told about these people. Are we like these people? Here are the first Christians. Do we conform to this pattern? Very well. We see that they show the new life in certain ways. The first thing we saw was this, that they leave the world. Peter tells them to do that. Save yourselves from this untoward generation, this crooked generation, this rebellious, recalcitrant generation. Save yourself. Get out of it, says Peter. If you remain there, you're doomed. Get out, and they did. But then positively. They joined themselves to these apostles and this company of 120 people. In other words, they became members of the Christian church. Now then, we're looking at this, and we find that what's so obvious about them is that this becomes immediately the biggest thing in their lives. You can't keep them away. They continued steadfastly, and all that believed were together. And are all things common, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. You see, you didn't have to drive these people to a place of worship. You didn't have to wheedle them and cajole them. You couldn't keep them away. They wanted to be together the whole time. And we've considered the reasons why that was so. It was this new life that they'd all got together. 
And so they came together and they continued together. Now then, the next question we come to, and this is what I'm putting before you this evening, is this. What did they come together for? What happens in a Christian church? What is the church for? Here are these people. They've come out to the world. They come together to this particular group of people called Christians. Why do they come together? What do they come together for? I think you'll all agree with me that that's a question that needs to be asked today. What is the Christian church for? What does she do? What does she provide? What is it about her that attracts people? What do they find when they come to the Christian church? Doesn't this question need to be asked? I think you'll agree that it does. And I think you'll agree further that it's essential we should start with a negative. What did they come together for? Socials. Whist drives. Dances. Raffles, dramatic performances, lectures on politics, literature, sociology. You see the importance of the negative, don't you? There was nothing like that in the early church. I'm not here to denounce these things. That's not my object at all. But I'm here to ridicule them and to show how far removed they are from the Christian church, all that you can get in the world, and you can get it very much better in the world. The Christian church, in a sense, makes a fool of herself when she attempts these things. She does them so badly. If you want things like that, well, go and get it done professionally, get it done properly. But that's not the Christian church. It's a travesty. You see, I'm not here to defend Christendom. I'm not here to advocate any particular section of the church or any particular local church. I am here to hold before you the picture of the New Testament church. That's the only church I recognize. They didn't come to the church to do things like that. They didn't expect them and they didn't get them. And when true revival takes place, those things go out. They're the first things to go out. People lose their interest in them. A church which can only exist by resorting to things like that is, I say, the greatest travesty imaginable of the New Testament church. It's the exact opposite of the New Testament church. What did these come together for? Well, here's the answer. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. Something, you see, purely spiritual. And this is the pattern for the church at all times. That's what they came together for. They did it daily. They couldn't have enough of it. You couldn't keep them away from it. This is what they wanted. Now, let's look at this. Let's start with the first doctrine. The apostles' teaching. Now, this is the first thing that is put here in this list. And that's why we've got to start with it. And it's very important that we should do so. Why? Well, I want to try to show you this. Because, again, there is not only confusion at this point, there is real opposition to what we read here. Real opposition to it. But the first thing these first Christians desired was further teaching from the apostles, the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine. They coveted this and they desired it with the whole of their being. Shall we, before we go any further, ask ourselves a simple question? 
Do we desire the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine? God grant that that's the thing that brings us all to this meeting tonight, that we want to know the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine. Now, I say that, unfortunately, there is a great deal of confusion at this very point, just at the present time. But look at these people, and this is what you find. And this tells us something tremendously important. It's this, that Christianity is not only and not merely an experience. Now, I've been emphasizing that it is an experience, and I must go on doing that. It isn't merely an intellectual point of view. When a man becomes a Christian, he has undergone the profoundest change a man can ever know. It is indeed a profound experience. But it isn't only an experience. Why do I have to emphasize that? Well, for this good reason, that there are other agencies in the world that can give people experiences. And how do you tell the difference between the experience of becoming a Christian and some other experience, a psychological experience, if you like, or the change as the result of some psychotherapy or something like that, or the change produced by one of the cults? Because they do. It's no use disputing it. They do influence their people, and people talk about their lives being changed and this and that. How do you tell the difference between an experience which is Christian and one which is not? There's only one answer, and that is the cause of the experience. A Christian is a man who has had an experience as the result of believing a particular truth or teaching. Now, that, I say, is the only way whereby you can test. You can get two people. They may both say, I'm very happy. They may both say, I used to do that, I no longer do it, I've been delivered from it. Now, it doesn't follow that because the two men say that, that they're both Christians. There are other agencies, I say, which can do that. How do I know which is Christian? There's only one test, it's this one test I'm holding before you. It is what has led to the experience, what is the source of the experience. Yeah, you see, are people who come together because, as I showed you last Sunday night, they've had the same experience. But the thing that strikes us at once about them is this, is that they have had the same experience because they have believed the same teaching, the same message. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. You see, it was teaching that made the early church. There would never have been an early church but for a particular teaching. So we are bound to emphasize this, that the teaching must come first because it is the teaching that led to the conversions, the change, and therefore the establishing of the Christian church. It was Peter's preaching, which is Peter's teaching, Peter's doctrine. It was that that brought these people together. They that gladly received his word uh, were uh, baptized. And there are other, we are told in verse 44, and all that believed. What did they believe? The same teaching. Very well, there is the reason then uh, why it's got to be brought first. But let us ask a second question. Why did these people want this teaching? Why did they gather together every day in that part of the temple that was allowed to them and there listen to the teaching and the preaching and the exposition of truth from the lips and the mouths of the apostles. 
Why do you think they did this? Well, I think this is tremendously important. You know, we're living in an age when people are trying to say that uh, we've got to scrap preaching and teaching and uh, what we must have is, oh, here's the word, dialogue. Dialogue. Well, that just means two people talking together. But it sounds so much better as dialogue, doesn't it? Dialogue, discussions. Not teaching, not preaching. Cut it down, they say. You remember a man said recently, the beginning of this year, we must scrap this old method of twice on Sunday, 11 and 6.30. Once alone's enough. Nine o'clock, and that briefly so that people can go out and enjoy themselves. We don't want teaching this. We don't want preaching. Discussions, question and answer. For about 25 minutes or so, as if that could ever lead to anything. Now, my friends, it wasn't like that in the early church. They continued steadfastly every single day. They came. They wanted this apostle's teaching, this doctrine. Why did they want it? Well, there are many answers. Let me give some of them to you. The Apostle Peter, this very man who was preaching on this occasion, later on wrote a letter to a number of Christian people. And this is what he said to them. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. In other words, you see, this is something that is inevitable. A man, when he's born again, becomes a Christian. He is indeed like a newborn babe. The babe doesn't understand anything, but it's got an instinct in it. And it's an instinct for milk. It wants it. It makes for it. The milk. Of course, it's a proof of the fact that this is a child and not a doll. It's alive and it wants the milk, the mother's milk. Instinct makes it do it. Rightly so. It's exactly the same with the Christian. A man simply cannot be a Christian and have no desire for a knowledge of this truth. It's impossible. You see, that's why all these characteristics are such thoroughgoing tests of every one of us. It's something instinctive without going any further. Or let me put it in another way. You see, here are people who have suddenly heard something marvelous, which they didn't know before. And this is the most astounding thing they've ever heard. And the preachers have said, there's more, I can't tell it you all now. And so they came together, they were afraid of missing something. And you know, I sometimes think that about Christian people. I don't understand some of them. They seem to want the minimum of teaching. My friends, aren't you afraid sometimes that something tremendous may happen in the house of God when you are not there? It's a wonderful thing to be in the house of God. It's a wonderful thing to be listening to the preaching of the gospel. Not because I'm preaching. Oh, no, no. But because it's God's truth. Because the Holy Spirit is here. You never know what may happen. And what if he should suddenly come and visit us in the glory of his power. And you were not here. These people were taking no risks. They wanted all they could get. They didn't want to miss anything. They were afraid of missing something very precious. This is all instinctive in the Christian. Is it instinctive enough? But come, let me put it like this to you. Why did they want more and more of this teaching? Well, another answer is, you see, that they'd become aware of their ignorance. I've already dealt with that in a sense, but let me put it in a new form tonight. Here were the men, you see, who'd shouted away with him, crucify him. They thought they knew all about Jesus of Nazareth. Who is this fellow, they said, this carpenter, this... Nazarene, who is he? 
Who is he to claim son of God and saviour? This monstrous thing. Get away with him. Crucify him. Let's get rid of him. And they thought they were clever. As people still think they're clever by denying Christianity and making fun of the message of the Christian church. But suddenly they're awakened. They're pecked in their hearts. They're convicted. And what they discover is their appalling ignorance. They thought they knew so much they find they knew nothing. They've made the greatest blunder, the most tragic blunder men and women can ever make. And they didn't realize it. They were blind. And suddenly their eyes have been opened. You see, you can't become a Christian without being made humble. Our Lord himself said, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. If any man willeth to be wise in this world, says the Apostle Paul, let him become a fool, that he may be made wise. The first thing that happens to a man who becomes a Christian is that he's convicted of his ignorance, his darkness. He doesn't know. And once he's been shown that he's terrified lest he should still be ignorant of certain things that are vital. So he says, I must listen to that. I want more and more and more. I don't want to be held in ignorance any longer. I want light. So he comes and he longs for the teaching. Have you realized your ignorance, my friend? Your ignorance about yourself. Any man or woman who thinks highly of himself or herself is just plain ignorant. How difficult it is for us to know ourselves. It's only this gospel that can really do it. What you know about God, what you know about life. We talk so grandly and so bigly, what do we know? The gospel convicts us of ignorance, and the man who knows he's ignorant is a man who is thirsting and hungering for knowledge. He doesn't want to be held any longer in the thraldom of ignorance, the darkness of ignorance. So they came together daily. Then thirdly, this tremendous thing that had happened to them, they wanted to understand it more and more. They knew that it had happened. They were different people. They don't no longer want to hold on to the world, but they want to join these other people. But then the natural question to ask is, well, what is this? What is it that's happened to me? They didn't know. They're newborn babes. And they want to understand it. They want to have some explanation of it. It's, again, you see, quite inevitable. Oh, there's nothing, as I said last Sunday night, that I'm further removed from than that uh, tendency on the part of some to try to persuade people to come and to wheedle them and almost to bribe them by giving a, a bit of a social or a whisper just to get them to come and listen anyhow some of my dear friends to, to the apostles such a thing would be blasphemy. Do you want to understand what's happened to you? Do you want to understand what you've seen happening to somebody else? Is there this kind of divine curiosity in you? You say, I see that person's got something I haven't got. What is this? I want to know it. I must go and listen to that teaching. That's the thing. And then, of course, they wanted to learn more and more about it. They'd come into this new realm, this wonderful life. And again, it's quite natural and instinctive, isn't it, to want to know more of it. When you've got something really good, you want more and more of it. And they've got this wonderful thing that have changed everything. 
And they said, oh, what is this? This is only the beginning we can see. Let's hear. They wanted to grow and to develop. Like newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that he may grow thereby. But let me give you a still better reason. They wanted to learn more about this truth in order that they might be able to help others. These were ordinary men and women like ourselves. And they'd got perchance fathers or mothers or husbands or wives or children or parents. And this had happened to them. Their eyes had been opened. They'd seen the peril of their position, the darkness of their existence. And they're in this new realm and all its wonder and its glory. But their loved ones are still there. And they're worried and troubled about them. They want to help them. But how can they help them? What have they got to say to them? It's no use going to them and say, I've had a wonderful experience. That doesn't help the other person. They'll say, well, what's happened to you? How you've got it? How have you got it? How can I get it? And as a newborn babe, you're not in a position to answer those questions. So you desire the teaching, the instruction, the information that the apostles give in order that you may be able to help others. This same Peter, again, writing in his first epistle in the third chapter, says, Be ready at all times to give a reason for the hope that is in you. For instance, somebody says to you tomorrow morning in the office, What were you doing last night? You say, I went to chapel. And, oh, they say, why'd you do that? Well, you say, uh, I, I was brought up to do this. Oh, well, I wasn't, says the other. Well, you say, well, you know, I, I haven't really thought much about this, but I've always done it, and uh, there's something about it I like, you know. But he says, what is this? What do you do there? Why do you do it? What's it all about? And if you can't answer his questions, my dear friend, oh, what a poor Christian you are. What an opportunity you're missing. You see, a Christian is a man who knows, he's taught as to why he is what he is. And he can tell others what they've got to do. These men cried out as Peter was preaching, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And what would have been the position if Peter had turned to them and said, Well, I really don't know. I've had a wonderful experience myself, but I don't quite know what it is. Or I've been brought up in this way, and this is, happens to be my temperament, and I happen to like this sort of thing. You see, the thing would have been useless. But Peter can give them specific answers. And you and I must be able to do this. Your next-door neighbor may be in great trouble. A marriage may be breaking down. There may be some sadness, bereavement, sorrow, some disappointment. A life may have become shattered by something. And there they are. They don't know what to do and they can't find help. The world laughs at them. The jazz goes on. The music is played. The television continues. And they're left with their own misery. And oh, they're waiting for a word. These people knew that and they wanted to understand in order that they could help others and show them the way of salvation and of deliverance. These are the reasons that made them continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. But come, let me take you to another aspect of this matter. There is a definite teaching they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. There is such a thing as apostolic teaching, apostolic doctrine. Now, this is the very point uh, at which all this is not only controverted today, but uh, ridiculed and dismissed. And I must, of necessity, deal with it. 
I am in this pulpit for one reason only, and that is that I have believed the apostolic doctrine and teaching. I've got no other teaching. I'd have nothing to say if I didn't just hold before you the apostolic teaching. I don't stand here to say what I think. I am simply repeating what I find here. I'm expounding the scriptures. Apostolic doctrine. But I say this is seriously questioned today and indeed militantly controverted. Now let me give you one statement of this. It's most extraordinary. Those of you who worship here regularly will know that I've been doing this, as I say, for several Sunday nights. But it is, you know, as if the world knew that I was doing this. I read to you a piece from a newspaper last Sunday night. I'm now going to read to you out of a little book which was sent me since last Sunday. Just the very thing to introduce this matter that's before us this evening. Here is a book bearing the title, Not So Much a Creed, More a Way of Life. Meant to be clever, you see, meant to be clever. But like the program that it imitates, I think I can show you that it's not quite as clever as it thinks it is. Not so much a creed, more a way of life. We are right up to date, aren't we? 1965. We are with it. Very well, what does it say? Well, this is what it says, you see, in the introduction. Jesus taught very little theology. The four records of his life and message say nothing about the fall of men or God's plan of salvation. He did not require from his disciples the acceptance of any creed. There is no hint of the need for any atonement for sin. He says plainly that forgiveness depends on repentance and on showing a forgiving spirit in, in, in one's dealings with others. He proclaims a new way of life the way of righteousness, a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, I suggest that Christianity will die as a theology and rise again as a way of life. This is it, typical 1965. As a way of life, it has tremendous value and can contribute a great deal to the welfare of the world and the happiness of its people. I hope to deal with that, God willing, next Sunday night. But here it is, you see, modern education in geology and astronomy, in history and in simple logic has made the old beliefs incredible to most people today. It has created an attitude of mind which just cannot accept them as true. Does this mean the end of Christianity? Are we about to enter the post-Christian age? And his answer is that it's going to die as a theology and rise again as a way of life. Now, it will be very difficult indeed to find uh, summarized in smaller compass such a, a blank contradiction and complete denial of what we are taught not only in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles but in the whole of the New Testament. What is the answer to this kind of thing? There are probably people here tonight who agree with it. You say, we don't want doctrine. We don't want teaching. We don't want theology. All we want is something to help us to get along. My dear friend, the answer to that is nothing will help you to get along except this apostolic teaching. What's the answer to this? Well, I don't want to waste too much of your time, but God knows if there's anybody who's held with such nonsense, it is my duty to disabuse your mind and to open your understanding. These are some of the answers to this statement. According to that statement, you see, the apostles contradict their own Lord and Master. 
The apostles are full of doctrine. But according to this, there should be no doctrine. So the apostles are wrong, and the apostles contradict the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's only one answer to that. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who called these apostles. It was he who taught them. It was he who told them what to preach. It was he who gave them the message. It was he who sent the Holy Spirit down upon them to enable them to do so. That is enough in and of itself. But you see, there is another answer, and that's why I read to you that 16th chapter of John's Gospel at the beginning. That chapter seems to me to have been written almost deliberately to meet this very kind of objection. They say, and it sounds so wonderful, you see, they say, don't you listen to that man Paul. Don't you listen to these apostles. Listen to Jesus with his simple gospel. No theology there. Do you know the answer? Listen to this in John 16, 12. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. It is, of course, perfectly right and true to say that there is less of this pure doctrinal teaching in the Gospels than there is in the Epistles. But they tell you that themselves, and they tell you why it was so. And the answer is this. You read the four Gospels. And you will find that our Lord kept on referring to his death and to his resurrection. And the disciples couldn't take it on a single occasion. They stumbled. Peter remonstrated with him and said, what are you talking about dying for? This is impossible with you. They all did the same. They never grasped the truth about the resurrection, so that when he was crucified on the cross, they were utterly disconsolate and cast into the depth of despair. What was the matter? The trouble was, as he says, you cannot bear them now. As our Lord talked about his death and resurrection, they were blind, they were stunned, they couldn't receive it. But he tells them, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself from himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He will glorify me. Not only that, we've got still more powerful evidence. If you take the trouble when you get home tonight to read the last chapter of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, you will find that there our Lord, after his resurrection, gave instruction to his own followers and disciples. They were cast down and utterly disconsolate, and this is how he spoke to them. He said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. After his death and resurrection, he expounded it to them. He explained it to them. And they were now able to receive it. But when the Spirit came upon them, they were able to do so still more. You see, this statement is altogether wrong. There's nothing right in it. They say that he teaches us nothing about the fall of men. But didn't our Lord himself teach, you must be born again? Why must they be born again? Because he says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He says, ye are they, ye are of your father the devil, and the works of your father he will do. He said, the son of men is come to seek and to save that which is lost, lost. 
That's it. All this teaches the fall of men. And then we are told that he doesn't teach us anything about the plan of salvation. Doesn't he? Read the 12th chapter of John's Gospel. Father, the hour is come. What shall I say? Shall I say, save me from this hour? No. For for this hour came I into the world, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. That's his teaching. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not, not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen to him. The Son of Man, he says, is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What is this? God's plan of salvation, God's atonement. No creed, says this friend, and many with him. But this is pure creed. This is sheer teaching. This is sheer doctrine. And do you remember on another occasion when certain people had believed in him? He said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Read him in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, The word that thou hast given me, I have given unto them, and they have believed it and accepted it. This is teaching, this is doctrine from beginning to end. In other words, even in the Gospels, you have the teaching on all these most essential doctrines. But as our Lord says, he can't give it them fully because they're not yet in a position to receive it. As he told them about his death that was to come, they staggered. As they looked back upon it in the light of the resurrection, they began to see it. The resurrection proves that he's the Son of God. Why did he die? The, the only way of salvation. And the Spirit makes it yet clearer to them and gives them power to preach it and to proclaim it. There is the simple answer to this monstrous suggestion. This 20th century man, with his knowledge of geology and science and so on. My dear friend, there's nothing new about re rejection of the gospel. They rejected it in the first century. Modern knowledge has nothing to do with it. It is the blindness of sin that makes men write and say such things. But there's infinitely more that I could put before you. Apostolic doctrine. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And these apostles all preached the same doctrine. Every one of them. They were doing it here. Read your book of Acts right through. They continue to do it. At times, they seem to differ. Then they'd have a conference and they'd agree. You read about that in chapter 11. You read about it in chapter 15. They were all of one mind, of one accord. And whatever the difference is, they settled them. They all believed the same truth. And indeed, we've got very specific statements to this effect. The Apostle Paul was being questioned and queried in Corinth as to whether he was an apostle at all. This is how he answered. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. And then he reminds them of the content of the gospel. And he goes on to make this claim. 
He says, I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. They all preached the same message. You'll get the apostle saying that again explicitly in Galatians 1 and in Galatians 2. And you get the apostle Peter paying him the tribute in his second epistle and the third chapter of referring to his writings as scriptures. They all preached the same gospel. What is it? Well, you see, the Apostle Paul again says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There is no other foundation to the church. It's not a shifting foundation. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. There is such a thing, I say, as an apostolic message. The apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, the apostles' instruction. And so it continued. And so you find that in the first centuries of the Christian church, the fathers of the church met together in conference in great councils. False teachings had come in. How did they evaluate? The answer was always that which conforms to the apostolic doctrine and teaching. And so they formed their creeds, the Apostles' Creed. Not that it was actually compounded by the apostles, but it represents their teaching. The Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, all these great creeds of the church are expressive of the unity of the teaching, the unity of the doctrine. And when you come to the great confessions of the Reformation period, you have exactly the same thing whether it be the Church of England, 39 Articles, or the Westminster Confession of Faith, in all the great essentials of this teaching, they are one, they are unanimous, and they are agreed. Very well. The point I'm establishing is this, that they came together to listen to and to attend upon a particular teaching, not speculation. Not one man getting up and saying, I say it's this, and another saying, no, I think it's that. Modern knowledge has taught me this. No, no. An apostolic message given by the risen Lord to the apostles. Didn't he arrest Paul of, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? Didn't he reveal himself to him? Didn't he say, I'm going to make you a witness and a minister? Didn't he tell him what to say? The same message as he'd given to all the others? There is such a thing as an apostolic message, apostolic teaching, and that, and that alone is Christianity. What is it? What is this teaching? Here's the vital question. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, 
What did they teach them? Do you know the apostolic teaching? Have you believed it? Have you received it? Do you want to know more about it? What is this teaching? Is it possible for me to tell you what the Christian teaching is? Is it something vague, nebulous, indefinite? Is it something that's got to be new because man knows geology and certain other sciences? Is it different from what it was in the first century? The answer is no. The message is one and it's still the same. There is no other message. What is this message? Let me give you the answer in a brief word. The message is summarized in many places in the New Testament. Peter had already given them a summary of it by saying, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of sins. He had already explained the death and the cross to them. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath risen up. That's it. What's it mean? What is this apostolic teaching? Shall I tell you in my closing words? It's this. It's summarized again in 1 Corinthians 15. It's summarized in 1 Thessalonians 1 in two verses, 9 and 10. How we turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to await for his Son from heaven, even Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, who delivered us from the wrath to come. That's apostolic teaching. That's apostolic preaching. What's it mean? It's this. This is Christian teaching. Where does it start? It starts with God. It doesn't start with modern men. It doesn't start with latest knowledge. It doesn't start with biology or geology. It starts by saying, in the beginning, God, the creator of the whole universe and the sustainer of the cosmos, God in his holy being, God in his righteousness, his glory, his everlasting light, God. And the world that he made, and men that he made. Man made in the image of God. Not a sniveling creature that goes through life just eating and drinking and indulging his sex as if he were an animal in the farmyard. No, no. But upright and righteous, a reflection of something of the divine glory itself. God, man, the universe. And then the fall of men. Man's rebellion against God. And sin and shame and havoc and misery and unhappiness. And man in need of salvation. And the judgment of God upon it all. This is apostolic teaching. The modern man doesn't like it. No, no. He says, not so much a doctrine as a way of life. But you can't have it. This is truth. This is God's message. And the Son of God is the proof of it. Why did he come into the world? Here's the answer. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, 
but have everlasting life. If a man doesn't believe on God's Son, he will perish. There's the judgment of God. John 3.16, they say, is the most wonderful verse in the Bible. Very well, if you say so, believe it. And it's God and man and the fall and damnation and the only way of escape. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this blessed person who was born as a babe in Bethlehem, the incarnation, it's nothing but sheer doctrine that God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. God visiting and redeeming his people and the Son coming what for? Oh, to save us. How? By taking his, our sins upon himself. By bearing our punishment. By being smitten by the stripes we deserved. By dying in our stead. By bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness. This is apostolic teaching. And then the gift of new life in the spirit. The possibility of a new start. Not only are my sins forgiven, I'm made a child of God, I've got a new nature, I'm born again, I'm a new man, and the Spirit of God is in me, enabling me and strengthening me, progressively sanctifying me. What for? Oh, to prepare me for the glory everlasting that's awaiting me in Christ. That's the apostolic message. And that is the thing that these people coveted to hear more and more of. They knew they'd got new life. They said we need more of it. We're in the world still. And the world and the flesh and the devil are powerful. And we are weak. Tell us what's the teaching. They wanted to know what it means to be in Christ and Christ in you. The hope of glory. They wanted to know more about this blessed spirit that can change a man and give him power. They wanted to know more about that world that's to come, not this passing evil world, but that world and its pleasures and its joys. Who can teach them but the apostles? And how do they know? Well, because Christ has revealed it unto them. So they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and of prayer. Oh, my dear friend, we've got to leave it at that for this evening. God willing, as I say, I'm going to return to it again next Sunday night. This is the only thing that matters, you know. I don't know the future of this world. I'm not an expert in politics. I don't know enough about it. I don't know what's happening behind the scenes. So I don't waste your time by preaching politics to you. I'm not here to get you to organize campaigns against bombs or this or that. I'm here to tell you what is delivered to me through these apostles, the only authority I have, and that's their message. that you and I and all mankind have got to stand before God in the judgment. And that all of us as we are by nature cannot do so. The ungodly cannot stand in the judgment. He'll be swept away like the chaff, as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 1. And this is the thing that matters, whatever the political future may be. Whatever governments may come or go, you and I are living souls and we are facing God and eternity. This is a passing world at best. We've all got to die. Our time is short. Life's but a breath of vapor. And the supreme question is, how can a man be just with God? 
How can I get forgiveness for my sins? How can I get a new life and start living in a worthy manner? How can I lose the fear of death and the grave? How can I prepare for that eternity that's coming? And thank God, the apostolic doctrine deals with those questions and it answers them. It is the only teaching that does so. The philosophers don't know. They can talk cleverly. They can't live so well, many of them. There is nothing under the sun tonight that deals with our fundamental and essential problems and questions. Save this apostolic doctrine. Oh, thank God for it. Thank God that it's plain. Thank God it's clear. Thank God that it's been preached through the running centuries. Thank God that it's as true tonight as it was 1900 years ago. Thank God it is the everlasting gospel. There'll never be another because this is about what God has done himself in his only begotten Son for us men and for our salvation. My dear friend, have you believed, have you received this apostolic doctrine? I can test you very simply. If you have believed this and received it, you've got new life, spiritual life. And that will show itself in this way. You will be hungering and thirsting for more of this. It will become the greatest interest of your life. You'll be interested still in other books, but you'll find, as I say to the glory of God, that I find there are many books I'd like to read. I just haven't got time. I'm too busy reading this and books that help me to understand it. Now, I'm not criticizing the others. I like to read books on history. I like reading biography. I like reading about music. I like reading about many of these subjects. I like reading medicine. I like reading aspects of science, psychology, philosophy, and so on. But, you know, my whole problem is to get the time. This. Oh, I find life here. I find something here not only for my mind, but it moves my heart. It melts me. It moves me. It fills me with rapture. It strengthens my feeble will. I want this. And any man who has new life in him, the life of God in his soul, this new spiritual life will be like a newborn babe. He will desire the sincere milk of the word that he may grow thereby. Have you got that desire? If you haven't, you're dead. I don't care whether you're a church member or not. If you haven't got this desire, you're dead. If this sermon has been too long, I venture to say you're dead. If the Bible is still boring to you, you're dead, my friend. If you find prayer difficult and a test, you're dead. And therefore you've but one thing to do. Go to God, repent, confess your sin. Tell him you realize you're dead. Ask him to give you life anew. To breathe his spirit upon you. And to give you new life from amongst the dead. And one of the first things you'll find about yourself is this. That this will become central. You'll want to know more and more. You'll have a hunger and a thirst for it. And you'll put everything on one side in order that you may know this. Because this will build you up and prepare you not only for death, but for the glory that awaits you the other side of it. Oh, beloved people, 
May God give you grace to examine yourselves in the light of this. I'm not asking whether you're a good man or a good woman. I'm asking you this. Are you a new man? Are you a new woman? Is there this spiritual life? Nothing else matters. Make certain. Go to him if you haven't got it and ask him for it. He won't refuse you. I have his authority for saying this. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Get hold of that water of life that he alone can give that will spring up within you like a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Thank God. This is Christianity. This is God's way of salvation. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to listen to sermon number two from this Martin Lloyd-Jones twin spin uh, entitled The Church and Doctrine. Same text. It's going to do the hermeneutical spiral. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. We will return in a second and continue with this Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon. Stay tuned. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Suck as a human being. Come listen, I'm playing games, we all. 
I think that you officially suck as a human being. I love playing games. I think that you officially suck as a human being. Other tracks include Your Grandma Smokes Weed and I Don't Like Hanging Out With People That Make Me Uncomfortable. Act now. And Los Lobos Ministry will even throw in a free bonus track by Stephen Furtick entitled, Cause They're Stupid. Here's a sample. Cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. So act now and get Pastor Perry Noble's brand new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the church really has nothing to do with entertaining people or being a country club of do-gooders. Yeah. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, 
When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is sermon number two in our Martin Lloyd-Jones twin spin as we get ready to go into the Labor Day holiday. It is entitled The Church and Doctrine. It's another look at Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. Here we go. And my argument is that the only honest thing to do if we want to know what the church is or what Christianity is or what a Christian is, is to go back to this book of the Acts of the Apostles. What right is a man in the 20th century to say, this is the church? What's his authority? What's his sanction? If you want to know what it is, well, I should say that honesty dictates alone, without going any further, that we must go back to the origin, to the beginning. How did it ever come to be? It's a long story. It goes back the best part of 2,000 years. What is it? Now, this, to me, is the great and the all-important question that we must face at the present time. And here we've got it. You remember this tremendous thing that happened on the day of Pentecost. The apostles and 120 people were in an upper room. Suddenly the Holy Spirit came down upon them. And they were all changed, filled with a sense of glory and of power, spake with other tongues, and then the crowd came gathering together. This thing had become a phenomenon. And the apostle Peter stood up and addressed them. He preached a sermon to them, the first great Christian sermon, if you like. And uh, it was as the result of that preaching that we are told in verse 37 that when they heard this, that's to say these people who had come together and were listening, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and so on. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked, this untoward, this recalcitrant, rebellious generation. Then we are told that they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And these people joined the church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, our argument so far has come to this. That obviously what makes a man a Christian is that he undergoes this tremendous conviction, conviction of sin. Conviction that he's been all wrong in all his thinking. These are the people who had a few weeks before been crying out about Jesus of Nazareth, away with him, crucify him, rejected him. They now see they've made a tragic blunder, and they're in trouble. They've rejected the Son of God. They can see Peter's sermon has convinced them. They're pricked in their hearts. They're alarmed. They say, what can we do? So they underwent this profound change in their thinking, in their feelings, and they desire to do something different. Now, that's what makes a man a Christian. He's a man who's undergone the profoundest change a man can ever know. 
It's called in the Bible a rebirth, regeneration. He's become a new man. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He's a new man. And he proceeds to demonstrate that. How does he do so? Well, we've seen this. He demonstrates that he's become a new man because he really does leave the world. Peter in the sermon said, save yourself from this untoward generation. And he does so. He realizes the world is doomed, so he gets away from it. And then he attaches himself positively to the church. And he does so steadfastly. They continued steadfastly. Verse 44, all they that believed were together. Verse 46, they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Here it is. They've all come together. What have they come together for? Well, as I told you last Sunday night, not for whist drivers. Not for dances. Not for raffles. Not for bingo. Not for drama. What did they come together for? The apostles' teaching. Apostles' teaching. Apostles' doctrine. This is the thing that is put first. And last Sunday night I gave you the reasons why they desired this teaching. My argument was that it's inevitable. As a newborn babe desires its mother's milk. So Peter argues, every newborn babe desires the sincere milk of the word that he may grow thereby. He wants to know more about it. And thank God, it is a specific teaching. And I gave you a hurried summary at the end last Sunday night as to what it is. But now, we can't leave this at that point. Because I know when I say all this, I am saying something that is the exact opposite of what is most popular at the present time. The modern man is a rooted objection to Christian doctrine, Christian dogma. Christian creeds. He hates them. And this is the subject with which I want to deal this evening. Because here we are told about the early Christians that what they desired above everything else was this Christian teaching, this Christian doctrine. And yet this is the thing I say that is being dismissed at the present time. This is obviously therefore a tremendously serious matter. Now there are people out in the world who dislike Christian doctrine. And I've in a sense got no complaint against them at all. I wouldn't expect them to like it. They wouldn't be where they are if they did like it. You don't expect anything from the world except rejection of Christian teaching. The world has always done that. There's nothing new about this. Nothing new at all. It was the world that rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching. It was the same world that rejected the teaching of these apostles. There's nothing new about that. We don't expect the world to do anything different. But this is what is new today, and this is what is alarming, and this is what is tragic. That the opposition to Christian doctrine is not confined to the world. It's at the very center of the teaching of the church herself. Now, this is the position which I want to hold before you. This is what is so serious that the church herself is now speaking against Christian doctrine and saying that that isn't what's needed, that that's no longer of any value whatsoever. Now, I uh, gave you a quotation about this 
last Sunday night, and I want to give you some further quotations tonight, in order that you may know exactly the kind of situation which we are having to meet. I uh, read to you out of a little booklet bearing the title, Not So Much a Creed, More a Way of Life. Forget the cleverness. There's nothing in that, but it's what it says inside that matters. And here it is again. A Christian church, we are told, may still perform a useful service in teaching men the Christian way of life and in persuading and helping them to walk in this way. Now, he says that after he said something like this. Throughout the ages, Christianity has been taught as a theology, a body of beliefs about God and his dealings with mankind. It concerned the creation, the fall of men, the awful consequences of the fall. It concerned God's plan of salvation, whereby he came down to earth as a man, was crucified, rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven in order to make possible the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life to those who by faith accepted this amazing sacrifice of himself for the sins of the world. These are the topics about which the councils of the church disputed and about which they drew up the creeds. Then, of course, here's the characteristic word. Modern education. In geology, in astronomy, in history, and in simple logic has made the old beliefs incredible to most people today. It has created an attitude of mind which just cannot accept them as true as if everybody until this generation had believed the whole lot and there had never been any objection to Christian doctrine. Here it is, you see. Uh, Does this mean the end of Christianity? Are we about to enter the post-Christian age? Well, in his kindness, he says, the Christian church may still perform a useful service in teaching men the Christian way of life and in persuading them and helping them to walk in this way. We may rightly rejoice that the Christian spirit is very widely active outside Christian churches, but we must also recognize that it does not yet dominate the lives of most of us. Now, that's a typical example of this modern position. Let me give you another one. I come across all this quite by accident at random. I wasn't looking for it. But week by week, as I'm going through this series of sermons, these are things that I find in the daily press. Listen to this, which I read last Monday. At a time when the role of the church in modern society seems dubious and the survival of Christianity doubtful, they write well, don't they? And you can't help feeling that they know that they do at a time when the role of the church in modern society seems dubious and the survival of Christianity doubtful. Then goes on to deal with the book which is being reviewed. Uh, It is harder, says the author of this book for them, it is harder for the modern men to believe in the Christian faith than it was for his forebears. Scientific and social revolution have produced The assumption that uh, with knowledge and power, men can make their own world. Life has become a do-it-yourself affair. And the sense of providence has been weakened. Whereas men once prayed for rain, he now builds 
reservoirs. I must preach on that last sentence sometime. Not tonight. Whereas men once prayed for rain, he now builds reservoirs. And I remember reading only last summer the great trouble in certain cities, the water had to be turned off at a given hour. Why? Well, because the level of water in the reservoirs had gone so low. All right, work out that for yourselves. I'll try to deal with it on some subsequent occasion. Now, these, these are typical of this modern attitude with which we are dealing. But um, there is one about which I am particularly concerned. Now, I'm going to quote now from a religious paper. The others were secular papers. Though dealing with religious books and with religious subjects, they were secular papers. But I'm now going to quote to you from the British Weekly, a free church nonconformist weekly religious paper. He puts it like this. I don't know whether you've read in your papers during this last week. It's ex I'm glad that the thing has become public because I can therefore deal with it in a way that uh, would not have been so easy last Sunday, for instance. Advertisements have been sent to many people recently about a proposed new magazine, which is to be called Penthouse. You may have read of the cases in the courts. I think it was on Friday. The reports were in the paper yesterday. Well, amongst other people, I received this advertisement two or three weeks ago. And the British Weekly, a fortnight ago, devoted a leading article to it and gave still further space. And it made a tremendous attack upon this proposed new magazine. In this advertisement, you see uh, photographs of nude women and various other such photographs. And an indication is given as to what the contents of this uh, magazine is to be. Now, the British Weekly attacks this attacks it violently, says it should be stopped, that it's terrible that such a magazine should be allowed to be produced in this country. And um, it quotes a statement in this advertisement. The uh, advertisers of this proposed magazine say that um, the people who are going to contribute to it constitute the nerve center of Britain's creative community. The British Weekly, aghast, says, what arrogant nonsense. The nerve center of Britain's creative community is with men like Sargent and Spence and Bunny and Robinson, that's the Bishop of Woolwich, and Tillich, the American theologian, as he's called, and all those whose genius is related to the creation of truth, beauty, and goodness. It goes on, why should a body of people who totally reject morality as we know it and who offer moral anarchy in its place blame society if in its own total interests it sets a limit somewhere? Now, this is the thing that concerns me more than anything else. Here you see is a religious paper attacking this immorality as it regards it and it even goes further and says that this is pandering to the prurient and everything that is unworthy. The British weekly holds up its hands aghast. This is terrible, it says. But you notice the way it puts it. It says, these men behind this magazine are not the nerve center of Britain's creative community. Who are these? 
who really are the nerve center of Britain's creative community. And here you get your list. And the two I'm interested in are Robinson, John Robinson, Bishop of Woolwich, the author of, you remember the famous book, Honest to God, and who draws so much on the theology of the other men mentioned, namely Professor Tillich, Dr. Tillich of America. These men whose genius is related to the creation, the creation of truth, beauty, and goodness. Now, here it seems to me is the thing to which we must address ourselves. Here you see a men who are uh, alarmed at the moral declension in taking place in this country. The open, arrogant, unashamed vice, the selling of it in books, the suggestion of it in plays and on the television, and so on. They hold up their holy hands in horror at all this. This is terrible, they say. And they say these intellectuals who are behind this proposal, they mustn't make this claim that they are the nerve center of the creative community in Britain. No, no, the people who are at the nerve center of the creative community are the Bishop of Woolwich and Tillich and some of these others who are mentioned who are prominent in other realms and in other spheres. Now, why are I so concerned about this? Well, I'm concerned about it for this reason. Here is a paper alarmed at the moral declension and yet at the same time attacking the apostolic teaching and lauding men who are doing their utmost to deny the apostles' doctrine and teaching. Now, this is a very serious thing, because it is to me of all attitudes the most hopeless. Shall I be misunderstood, I wonder, when I say this? I see much greater hope for the people who are producing penthouse than I do for the bishop of Woolwich and Tillich and others who follow the same school of thought. Why do I say a thing like that? Well, let me give you my answer. Here to me is the greatest problem at the present time, that the Christian church herself is attacking the only doctrine and teaching that can deal with the moral situation. And yet it doesn't see that. It's blind to it. Alarmed at the moral situation, but attacking and denying the only message that can deal with it. Now, let me put that to you. Let me put it like this. What is our answer, then, in terms of an exposition of this second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles? Well, I'm not going to waste your time with all this nonsense about the modern man. Fancy talking about geology and biology as if it's our modern knowledge that makes people deny the gospel and live a life of sin. <laughs> the New Testament's full of that sort of thing. I think this is a most interesting psychological problem. How people can write such utter nonsense. This is as old as Christianity. The denial of the truth is as old as the truth. Let that go. Come to the second point. The astounding thing to me about these people is that they simply cannot see that it is their own attitude that in many ways has produced the moral problem about which they're now so alarmed. Why has there been a declension in the morals of this country during the past years? What's the explanation of it? There surely is the fundamental problem. And to me there's only one answer to that question. 
It is not the two world wars. I know they've contributed. Undoubtedly they've contributed. But it is not the two world wars. It isn't the advance of knowledge. There are some of us who have had a little bit of scientific training, perhaps more than these people who write so cleverly, who are literary men generally, but still believe this message. It it isn't the advance of knowledge. What has been the main factor in the luring of the moral tone and life of this country? I have no hesitation in answering that. It has been the loss of the authority of the Bible. And the institution that has been most responsible for the losing of the authority of the Bible has been the Christian church herself. For the last hundred years, scholarship, as it's called, has been attacking the truth of the Bible. And they're telling us that the Bible is only an ordinary book like every other book. That's what John Wilson of Woolwich says. That's what Tillich says. These men have riddled the Bible with their criticism. There's no authority here any longer. They simply put up their own suppositions, their own theories, and their own speculations. The church, with her higher criticism, so-called, has literally undermined the confidence of people in the Bible. They say you mustn't take it as an authoritative word. It can't be. We know now that it's just like every other book, a compilation like many other similar books. Now, there's been no question about this at all. Or let me put it in another way, which to me is very fascinating, as a mere psychological study. During this present century in particular, there's been a great reaction against the old evangelical preaching, the old apostolic doctrine. And instead of it, men have been preaching what was called before the First World War a social gospel. Preachers used to say, no, no, that old gospel of individual personal salvation, it's no good. What we need is a social message. So they've been preaching social gospel, ethical teaching. They say that's the only way to redeem society. And this is the interesting thing. The more they've done that and the less they've preached the apostolic doctrine, the more the immorality and the vice and the ethical problem have increased. It is the very thing that they themselves have been doing that has aggravated the problem. They're undermining of the old gospel and they're preaching a purely ethical social gospel. It's produced the problem which they're now holding up their holy hands aghast at. They don't see that. They don't read their Bibles, you see. If they read the Old Testament alone, they'd find this that it was always when Israel turned her back upon God that she sank into immorality. And she only returned to morality and the Ten Commandments when she was in the right relationship to God. Indeed, history proves the same thing. The most moral, the most productive, the most uplifting epochs and eras in the history of this country have always been those that have followed religious revivals and reawakenings. The Elizabethan era, following the Reformation, the Cromwellian period, Puritan influence, all that followed the Methodist or Evangelical awakening of the 18th century. You see, the British Weekly talks about the morality to which we've been accustomed. What is that? That's the morality that came directly out of the Evangelical revival, the preaching of apostolic doctrine. It doesn't say that. They mustn't have it both ways. They can't have it both ways. The morality to which we've been accustomed was the direct outcome of this preaching and teaching. 
the thing they're attacking. Thus, you see this tragic inconsistency. But let me give you a third reason, third reason for rejecting this uh, extraordinary position. It's this. This teaching, which dismisses the teaching and the doctrine and simply puts up an ethical way of life and the teaching of Christ alone is the ultimate and final denial of Christ. That was the whole trouble with the, public, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Do you remember what our Lord said one day to these Pharisees and scribes? He contrasted them with the publicans and the harlots. He said, John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the sinners believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterwards that ye might believe him. In other words, our Lord always made this perfectly clear. There is more hope for the publican, the sinner, the harlot. The people, I say, who produce penthouse. Or who are hoping to produce it. There is more hope for them in the end than there is for your Pharisee. Who's the Pharisee? Well, the Pharisee is the man who is interested in the teaching of Christ but uh, denies him at the most vital and essential points. What are those? Oh, what annoyed the Pharisees was when Christ told them that they were sinners. They were always pointing to the publican. They get excited when a prurient magazine is about to be produced. And they point at them. Christ said, you are worse than those. You are self-righteous. You think you can save yourselves. You are satisfied with your morality. And when I say that I've come to die for you and to save you and that it's the only way whereby you can be saved, you reject me and you hate me. And that's what these people are doing today. That is the final blasphemy. That is the final denial of Christ. There is more hope in London tonight for the hopeless drunkards, your, apos, your, your alcoholics, your prostitutes, people who are in the very gutters of sin. There's more hope for them tonight than these people who say all we want is the teaching of Jesus and we can imitate him and follow his example and put ourselves right with God. That's the final denial. But they're not aware of this. These people, like the late Lord Bucket, who once had been a Methodist local preacher, but who'd given that up, and he was interviewed on television, and he was asked, uh, what's your position now? Well, well, of course, he said, with a smile, I no longer believe the doctrines, but I still hold on to the ethic. Poor men. Rejecting the doctrines, holding on to the ethic. So I come to my last count in this general way, which is this. That all this writing, this clever writing, is finally to be rejected because of its utter futility, because of its utter uselessness. It doesn't work. It's got nothing to give. It's got nothing to offer. Indeed, it's got no answer to the people who want to produce penthouse. The people who produce penthouse say, this is our view of life. You people say it's wrong, but what right of you to say it's wrong? We think it's all right. This is what we think is interesting. This is what we think produces happiness in this world. But you mustn't say that, say these other people. The penthouse people reply, why not? 
Well, their only answer is because we say so. They don't say the Bible says it. We say so. But it's no answer. The others have as much right to their personal opinion as these people who pick and choose in the Bible and reject the death of Christ and just emphasize his teaching. It's exactly the same position. So they have no right to criticize. Their criticism is useless and all that they propose is completely futile. Why? I want to answer that question. Why is it utterly futile to put anything before doctrine? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, doctrine, and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. Why must we put doctrine first? Why is it wrong to say doctrine doesn't matter? It's a way of life we want. Not so much a creed, more a way of life. This popular idea that a modern man cannot possibly believe the doctrines. He wants ethical teaching. He wants exhortation. He wants to be shown how to live and then he'll live it. Why is this to be rejected as of the very devil? Here are my answers. The first is that it has no standard of right to put before us. None at all. It's got no authority. We are living in an age which is very similar to the time of the judges spoken of in the Old Testament. That age is summarized in these words. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own sight. And that's what's happening today. No authority, no standard. You mustn't do that, say people. The others reply, why not? You see, if it's all just your opinion and mine, well, very well, do what you like. Everything becomes entirely relative. Now let me show you the terrible danger of this position. I'm now going to quote to you out of the autobiography of Mr. C. Day Lewis, one-time professor of poetry in the University of Oxford. He's written his autobiography. He's not a Christian, but this is what he says of his life in Oxford. Each proposition advanced by Plato or Aristotle, Hume or Berkeley, Spinoza or Kant seemed irrefutable till I read the opposite viewpoint. It appeared that of everything that was true, the opposite was true. This is what he learned in Oxford. Then he quotes from a cynical verse that was written by a friend of his, and here's the verse. In case you think my education wasted, I hasten to explain that having once been to Oxford, you can never really again believe anything that anyone says, and that, of course, is an asset in a world like this. I've done my best to read it as poetry. But, you see, Mr. C. Day-Lewis goes on to say that he didn't find it to be an asset. Having once been to Oxford, you can never really again believe anything that anyone says. Very cleverly, the other men can prove it's wrong. You believe the thing you read first, but then you read the opposite, and you see that's true. Well, now, C. Day-Lewis tells us he was in trouble. It was disturbing and distressing to him. He confesses, and these are his words, my mental confusion spread outward from the subject I was reading to the life around me, so that I found it difficult to make up my mind about anything at all. He says it produced a mental state of doubt, uncertainty, skepticism, and confusion that made positive action almost impossible. 
Extreme doubt, he says, is like a thick fog. Now, here is a man, an able man, who gets the best education that this country can provide, but you see where it leaves him. He is uncertain about anything or everything. What can you believe? There's no authority, there's no sanction at all. One man's opinion is as good as another. And not only that, these ideas are always changing. There was a time when everybody would agree in condemning sexual perversions. Not today, they're almost being gloried in. That's public opinion. That's public notions with respect to morality. You never know. It's right today, it may be wrong tomorrow. You're never certain of anything and everything's moving and shifting. Where are you? What are you to do? There's no standard. What's the use of condemning this proposed magazine? What authority have you got for doing it? Perhaps that'll be right tomorrow. Perhaps the philosophers will all be on that side. You don't know. You've no authority. You've got nothing on which you can rest. No, no, my friends, there's only one standard. And that is the standard of God's law, which is eternal and unchangeable. The Old Testament has faced the problems that the modern world faces. Your Davids and your Solomons, they could teach many people who like to play with sin what it really means. These sniveling people who sin vicariously in cinemas and looking at pictures... These were men, they were manly men, and they knew what sin was. They've been through all this before, and they come to this conclusion. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Nothing else is of any value. You've got to come here, it's eternal, it's absolute, it's unchanging and unchangeable. Let philosophic theories come and go, let climates of opinion change, let winds of change blow in every sense, moral and ethical, as well as political. Here is something that abides. And it's the only thing that abides. There is no standard, ultimately, apart from the law of God, which is universal in its application. And, of course, it was because it had that law that the nation of Israel, the Jews, stood out in the ancient world. They were the most moral and ethical people for that one reason, that it wasn't all speculation and relative positions. They had the law of God as it had been revealed to them. It accounts for their uniqueness. Very well, then, there is my first reason for rejecting as the very plague itself, this modern suggestion that we don't need the apostles' doctrine, that we simply need ethical teaching. My second reason is this one. That not only does it not give us any standard by which to live, it doesn't give us any reason why we should live it either. This is equally important. I have no standards, but now why should I be concerned even about standards? Why should the ethical problem engage my attention? Why should I be troubled by the proposal to print this magazine and similar things? Uh, why should I be disturbed at the tendencies that are so evident before our eyes? Now, here, you see, there is no reason given, there is no motive given to me at all as to why I should try to be moral and ethical, why I should try to live a good life. No reason. There is no ultimate motive suggested. And this question of motive is a very important one, which I could illustrate in many other ways. 
I think this whole question of motive is very important even industrially in this country today. I am not here to preach politics and I never do. But I think it is a fallacy to assume that if uh, a man belongs to some national industry that he'll work as well as he did before when it paid him to work well, I think you'll find you'll be in trouble. The profit motive is an important one. Why? Well, because of the biblical doctrine of men, which I'm about to tell you about. You see, there's this idea. Just hold the ideal before men. They'll all rise to it. Will they? Do they? Wait a minute. The appeal, you see, of this teaching which excludes doctrine and only preaches ethics and morality and conduct, it's too narrow. It's only interested in man's conduct. It isn't interested in man himself. It's only interested in time. It knows nothing about eternity. It's all too contingent. It's all too small. And it's all due, as I say, to the fact that it is based on an entirely false view of man. It's because it rejects doctrine. Now, the Apostle Paul has put this in a very vivid phrase for us. It's in that great 15th chapter of his first epistle to the Corinthians where he deals with the doctrine of the resurrection. There were people in Corinth 1,900 years ago who were beginning to say it didn't matter whether you believed in the literal physical resurrection of Christ or not. They say you can get a great advantage from his teaching. You're not bound to believe that he literally rose in the body from the grave. And the apostle writes that tremendous chapter of 58 verses in order to refute that. And this is what he says. Be careful, be careful. Evil communications corrupt good manners. He means this. Once you begin to go astray in your doctrine, you'll very soon be going astray in your behavior. You can't divorce doctrine from behavior. Evil communications corrupt good manners. It is essential, he says, that we should hold on to this. And this is the thing that we need to remind men and women of today. I'm arguing that the present condition is the result of the rejection of doctrine. It's the inevitable result. And you'll never deal with it until you come back to the doctrine which men are dismissing as being irrelevant and unnecessary. What am I thinking of? Well, I'm thinking of things like this. This modern teaching has no conception whatsoever of the depth of sin in fallen human nature. None whatsoever. And this is something which is really very surprising. Let me again give you again a quotation from a secular writer. And I choose this deliberately. In the 18th and 19th centuries, some, not all, emancipated thinkers, you notice these phrases, don't you? 18th and 19th centuries, emancipated thinkers. They were all slaves until the 18th century, remember? All men were stupid until the enlightenment of the 18th century and the great scientific advance of the 19th, emancipated thinkers. In the 18th and 19th century, some emancipated thinkers developed an optimistic view of the nature of man. They saw him basically as a noble savage, an innocent, corrupted by society. This view still lives in the doctrines of Karl Marx. But the political experiences of this century 
have not encouraged such optimism. How true. In this century also, scientific study has discovered much about the source of human emotions. This is beginning to explain, among other things, why our propensity for destructiveness is as great as the pessimism of theology had imagined. This is tremendous. But man's control of himself remains much less thoroughly explored than any other aspect of his situation. What does all that mean? Let me translate it to you. What he's saying is this, that the optimists of the end of the last century had a very optimistic view of men. They said, man's a noble savage. He is a wonderful fellow, but his environment has always been against him. He has been corrupted by society. And therefore, all you need is to change society. Put society right, and man will reveal his nobility. But, says this, men, political experience, he's referring to the two world wars, have not encouraged such optimism, I should think not. And today it's still less encouraged, isn't it? And what he says is astounding is this, that, this, that scientific study has discovered much about the source of human emotions. He calls it scientific study. He is wrong in his description. He's referring to Freudianism. The Freudian view of men. The study of all these things that govern and control our desires and our activities. He's referring to psychoanalysis and things like that. And he says this is beginning to explain, among other things, why our propensity for destructiveness is as great as the pessimism of theology had imagined it to be. You see, this man is saying that Freud, in a sense, has proved that the theologians were right, that Christian doctrine has always been right in its pessimistic view of men. But these people don't learn that even yet. They can't see it. The two world wars haven't convinced them. They say, we don't need your doctrine. We simply need to be ethically instructed. So we reject it for that reason. They don't realize the depth of sin in fallen human nature. In the same way, they don't realize how these things are harmful to the soul. They never talk much about the soul. They never realize with the Apostle Peter that we must say something like this, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The soul. You don't hear them talking about the soul. But these things, they war against the soul. That's why I mustn't do them. But they don't give me this encouragement. They don't tell me about the soul. Or in the words of our blessed Lord himself, what shall it profit a man though he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? They don't speak like that. This is teaching, you see. This is doctrine. This implies the fall and things like that. And the condition of man as he is in this fallen condition. And then over and above all this, the notion of judgment and everlasting and eternal destiny. They deny that. This is what the Bishop of Woolwich won't have. This is what he says you mustn't believe. It's even doubtful whether God is personal at all. He's simply the ground of being, says Tillich. And there's no such thing as a final judgment. And so the modern man says, well, then it doesn't matter very much. 
what I do. Yes, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 again, if Christ be not risen from the dead, if man doesn't rise, if there isn't a judgment, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's what people are doing. Because they've denied the doctrine, they're ignoring the way of life. They haven't a reason for living it. And then, you see, they exclude altogether the doctrine of the rebirth. Did you notice that great argument that I read to you at the beginning out of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians? You mustn't walk any longer as the other Gentiles walk, he says. Don't you realize you are God's dear children? You've been born again. You were sometimes darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. There's no such argument. Why? They don't believe the doctrine of the rebirth and regeneration. They don't want doctrine. They don't want the apostle teaching. They only want ethical instruction. And thus they exclude the most powerful arguments for ethical, moral living. And they entirely exclude the great argument that is based upon the need of our preparing ourselves for the glory that awaits us. The apostle John, believing all the apostolic doctrine, says... Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But this we know, that when he appears, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. And then he says, every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. They reject that. That's doctrine. That's Christian teaching. That's apostolic doctrine. It's gone. My motives for holy living are taken away from me. And they take from me the greatest argument of all. What's that? The greatest argument I know tonight for holy, ethical, moral living is this. My gratitude to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let Isaac Watts put the argument for us. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died... My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Then on he goes. He describes the agony and the blood flowing down. And then he ends by saying, Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Here's the argument. Where the whole realm of nature might. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But they've excluded it. They don't want teaching. They don't want apostolic doctrine. This is no good. The modern man can't take this. All we need is ethical instruction. You see, not only do they give me no standard for my living, they give me no reason for living it. And lastly... And most practical of all, they have no power to offer me which will enable me to live it. Let's take them on their own showing. They praise the Sermon on the Mount, Christ's ethical, moral teaching. They say, there it is, that is the life you're to live. And as this man puts it in his booklet, not so much a creed, more a way of life, he says, oh, you can only appeal and exhort and show example. What's it mean? Good advice. That is good advice and he used to us. 
What would be your position tonight if I had nothing to say to you except this? That you ought to give up sinning, that you ought to live a good life. And just left you at that. Is it easy to live a good life? Is it easy to resist temptation and sin? You see, these people, they talk beautifully. They write very well. But they give me no power. They give me no help. They leave me. There's the standard. I am left to live it. Imitate Christ. How can I? No, no, it's all useless. It's all futile. Why? Oh, these men, they know nothing about the power of the devil and the power of evil. Ah, but that's Christian doctrine. That's apostolic doctrine. In the modern man, he can't possibly believe in the devil. The apostles believed in the devil, of course, but they lived 1900 years ago. We are modern men. We know biology. We know geology. We don't believe in the devil, don't you? Well, then, in the name of God, I ask you, explain your world. Freud goes a good way, but he doesn't go far enough. The devil says there's only one explanation of the state of the world, and that is the power of the devil and the power of evil. These men don't know life. They don't know themselves. Why is the world as it is? It's the power of the devil. We are under the dominion of Satan. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. It is slavery. It is bondage. The world isn't free. Behind all these things that psychoanalysis may reveal is a malign power, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now dwelleth in the, in the children of disobedience, as Paul describes him in Ephesians 2. This is at the back of it all. And when you realize that that's the power, what's the use of good advice? The devil defeated every one of the greatest saints of the Old Testament. Every one of them, they were all defeated. He not only defeated men, the first men, Adam and Eve, when they were perfect, he has defeated all their progeny, the greatest included. So what's the value of good advice when you're fighting the devil? And then consider the nature of fallen men, or the nature, or if you like, fallen human nature. Oh, how superficial all this writing is. Why don't these men examine themselves? Why don't they stand before a moral mirror? Why don't they listen to their own imaginations and thoughts? Why don't they face it? If they did, they'd begin to say things like this with David. In sin did my mother conceive me. Oh, he says, create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. My trouble, says David, is not that I do an occasional thing that is wrong. It's not that I committed adultery and then murder on top of it. The thing that worries me is that I ever wanted to. My heart is unclean. It's vile. I'm rotten. Wash me with hyssop. I need to be cleansed. That's understanding. Or if you prefer it, take the words of our Lord himself. He says, this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Oh, that's the trouble. It isn't light we need. It's a nature that can love it and hate the darkness instead of vice versa. Or again, take the words of our Lord to these Jews to whom he promised to set free. 
They turned and replied, saying, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any men. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. My dear friends, we are all slaves, slave to sin and evil, thought, imaginations, actions. Oh, take that supreme bit of autobiography given us by the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. Here's honesty for you. Here's a man facing the facts, not simply writing a beautiful article. He says, that which I do I allow not, for what I do not, what I would not, that do I, but what I hate, that do I. I know, he says, that in me, that is to say, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for the will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when good is present with, when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward men, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? They know nothing about that. That's doctrine, you see. That's apostolic doctrine. That's the doctrine of men's fall. That's the doctrine of men in sin and evil. They don't believe it. And then add to that man's inability. You put the program before him, but the answer in the Old Testament is this. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Listen to Solomon writing in the book of Ecclesiastes, great wise men, worldly men with great experience. He says, I've come to this conclusion. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. It can't be done. Education can't straighten a man, can it? Read the proceedings of the police courts and the divorce courts and of any other court you like. No, no, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. It's no use telling us we can't, we are unable. Very well, my friends, I don't know what you feel, but what I feel like saying is this. Thank God for apostolic doctrine. Thank God for this teaching that the first Christians coveted and desired to be built up in. What is it? Oh, here it is. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why not? Well, because it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is this doctrine? Here's the apostolic teaching for which I thank God. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of God might be revealed and fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. What's it mean? It means this. That man is as he is because he is a rebel against God and has become an enemy of God. 
The carnal mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, and therefore there is only hope for men when he gets right with God. How can I get right with God? I've sinned against him. I've broken his laws. I've defied him. I've laughed at him. I've ridiculed him. I've denied him as a person. I've said he's only the ground of being. He's only goodness or he's only love. How can I be reconciled? There's only one answer. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why did he do that? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the only hope, my dear friends. This gospel, this apostolic teaching, preaching Christ, Son of God, crucified for our sins, buried, risen the third day, ascending to heaven, seated at the right hand of God, sending down the Holy Spirit. It's the only hope. How is it the only hope? Well, you see this deals with our sins and Christ has borne the punishment and we are forgiven. We are given a new heart, a new nature. We become the children of God. We have new life within us. We now have a nature that loves the light and hates the darkness instead of loving the darkness and hating the light. We've got the power of the Spirit of God within us. We've got a Christ who says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. There is a power in us, the power of God. Listen to Paul putting it to the Corinthians in these tremendous words. Listen to the moral problem in Corinth. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, it comes to what our Lord himself had said to those Pharisees, If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. You, says Paul to the Romans, were the servants, the slaves of sin. But ye have believed from the heart, you have obeyed from the heart that form of sound doctrine that was delivered unto you. That's the only thing that works. Because it is the only thing that gives me any power. The problem of men is not to know what's right. It is the problem of being able to do it. To will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I know not. Ah, says this man, there is still some hope for the Christian church. Of course, the doctrines are of no value. There is still some purpose, some function. She can still teach Christ's ethical teaching and exhort us to practice it. God have mercy upon us. We are all doomed. We are all damned if that's the case. But thank God it isn't the case. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. 
His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of your soul? And have you handed yourself just as you are to him to be led, to be saved by him? Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>